0: Well, man, it is great to be with all of you. Hey, we're going to jump back into the book of Romans today, and we're going to be looking at verses uh, 25 through 33 in chapter 9. Now, 9, 10, and 11 are often chapters that are so confusing, and, and, and there's so much debate around some of the doctrinal issues that come up in these chapters that it's often avoided. Uh, It's actually three chapters, I would argue, in the New New Testament that causes people, along with chapter one, to avoid teaching Romans altogether. And I think that that is really unfortunate because there are lots of passages in the Scripture that are difficult. Uh, But what we have to do is we have to keep the whole before us, specifically when it comes to the revelation of who God is as he has chosen to reveal himself to us through Scripture, and most specifically through his son Jesus. As I like to say that there is no God behind the back of Jesus. Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And what we saw in Jesus was also the work of the Holy Spirit, for Jesus said to his disciples, he said, the Spirit is with you and near you, but he will be in you. And essentially what he's saying to them is, what you have seen in me is what is going to be available to you. After I go through the cross and after I ascend to the Father, I will send to you. I will not leave you orphans. I will send to you another helper. So in Jesus, we actually see the triune God at play. Jesus is the direct imprint, as it says, the representation. We're told that in Hebrews that God at various times has spoken in various ways, but in these last days, the final word of God is Jesus Christ, his son, and which means that, G- that God has nothing to say to us but what he has said to us in Jesus. Uh, and what he continues to say to us in Jesus. And this is super important for us as we read through passages, because there are passages that if you were to, let me just give you an example. If you were to only have uh, Jesus's famous teaching on the sheep and the goats, you would inevitably believe that salvation was based specifically upon what you do. There's no getting around it. When you read that when you read that passage, uh, there there's nothing that would lead one to believe that you are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Those passages have to be put into the context of the whole and there are at times tensions, and those tensions are unavoidable. And what frustrates me is that often we have theologians that try to squeeze difficult passages into a particular theological grid, but you cannot do that without torturing some other passage. And so I have, this is one area where I deeply appreciate um, the Catholic respect for mystery. We need to allow for sacred mystery in scripture. There is a tension when we talk about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. There is a tension when we talk about faith and works. There is a tension when we talk about law and gospel. And those tensions are going to be there. There is tensions when we talk about the fact that there is an ethics to the kingdom of God and you, like me, find that you are nothing more than mixture, we shouldn't necessarily be uh, just relaxed in the fact that we're a mixture. <laughs> it's, it's all meant to lead us to a continual, as I talked about last week, that the goal is knowing him, intimately knowing him. And that, and that what we need to be focusing on is surrender, total surrender, not so much trying harder. And I think that this is really important for us. And we have to keep these things in mind. So I just want to set this up because when you read a difficult passage, you're like, there it is. God's, God's actually secretly a monster. And I think we need to be very careful to not apply to God a grid of our own making, but allow the person of Jesus and what scripture says about Jesus being the final word is that he must be the lens by which we look through all scripture. That would be my argument. And, and there are plenty that disagree with me, but I'm, I'm going to hold to a Christological center because there is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved. So I trust Jesus. Jesus is the one that makes Christianity compelling for me. It's why I'm a Christian, because Christ is in the name. So this section, I would argue, is about what I would call the cross of stumbling in the patience of God. Paul is addressing an issue that has arisen in the Roman church around Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and that the, the, the issue that has arisen is that those Jews that were, that were Torah-practicing Jews are asking the question, was God's covenantal promises with Israel, are they, are they null and void? Because I thought that the covenants of God cannot be moved and, and this is why we are told in 1 Corinthians one twenty three. but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block. I didn't finish the verse there, but I'll just tell you, it's a stumbling block specifically to the Jews. And then it goes on to say, and foolishness to the Greeks. But for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And I think that the cross of stumbling is something, the reason I put dot, dot, dot after it, because the cross of stumbling is not just a stumbling block for Jews. It continues to be the stumbling block for the world. It also continues to be the stumbling block for us as Christians. It is a reality that the cross continually confronts us with our inability to save ourselves. And that is offensive to the old man, to the old woman. That is to die daily with Christ. We have died once with him and have been risen into resurrected life. And yet somehow that old nature has this uncanny ability to resurrect itself. And it creates a frustration at times when we come up against the cross because the cross eradicates salvation by human effort. And I think that this is important. But this is what I want us to see because the cross of stumbling uh, and the patience of God are key to understanding 9, 10, and 11. What I would argue is that Paul's point is not that God is somehow cruel and that he is and he's this weird puppet master who literally creates evil people for the purpose of demonstrating his glory through his wrath because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I would argue that a good God could not make an evil thing. What a good God can do is make a, a thing that has the possibility of going wrong. And this is what has happened and there is a powerful reality in that because it challenges our ideas of what we think about when we think about sovereignty which is that god if god is all-powerful then everything must be in his control and i would argue that everything ultimately is in his control but if god sovereignly decrees to limit himself by creating vehicles vessels humanity, angelic hosts that have limited freedom and that freedom can be misused, that doesn't mean that God has lost control because God has an incredible ability of weaving the dissonant notes of existence into his redemptive story. Ultimately, his redemptive story will be told. So don't think that I'm diminishing God's sovereignty at all. I just am willing to defend that his sovereignty can include his freedom to give or grant freedom at least on a limited level. So I don't like to refer to free the whole free will, determinism conversation. It's so much more nuanced than that. It's not like you're either totally free or you're totally determined. <laughs> I would say, are we free? K- kind of, but we're limited. We don't get to pick who we were born to. We didn't get to pick where we were born. We don't get to pick how long we live. There is limitations. Even our freedoms... I mean, think about the controversies in our country over something as, as, as silly as masks. This is, a, this is a great hot topic. I don't like them because it makes my beard flat and I'm vain, okay? Um, but I don't like what it does to my face. It just it doesn't look right. I, I don't want to be a ninja. Um, and, but but I, I think about it. The, the, the big fight is over freedoms. You know that the same fight happened when they required people to wear seatbelts? Do you guys remember when that became a law? Many of you don't, but many of you do. I remember because when I was a kid, my dad would stick me and like 10 other children in the back of a pickup truck and drive while drinking a six-pack with no seatbelt on and all of us, you know, not the safest, you know, joy ride, which is why seatbelt. But people were enraged. They thought it was a violation of personal rights. And I think that this is one of those things where just we're not actually free. What do you mean by freedom? Because all of our freedoms are actually driven by by parameters, we are free, with always within parameters, and I think that that's an important thing to keep in mind because we have these we have these two dimensional visions of of these topics when it's actually far more complex, far more nuanced. Look what it says here in, in Romans ten twenty one. It says, "But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Israel's history, I just want you to know, is our history." Humanity is rebellious. He could have picked any country. He chose Israel, not because of their mightiness, but because of their insignificance. And through Israel, he brought forth the Messiah. And the redemptive plan all along was God's redemptive plan for his world. In fact, in choosing Israel, he says, I have chosen you, O Israel, that through you, you might become a nation of priests to the nations. But they rebelled against God's plan. Weird. First parents rebelled against God's plan. Israel rebelled against God's plan. The church continues to rebel against God's plan. You and I rebel against God's plan. This is why the cross is the cross of stumbling because it challenges our ideas of what brings about salvation into a broken world that is marked by the word mixture. Because even one who is born again in the power of the Holy Spirit still does nothing that isn't tainted by the reality that you live in a fallen body with a fallen mind in a fallen world. This is, this is our reality. And we don't talk about that well as a church. And I think that when you read this, God is, not, God is merciful with Israel. He was patient with Israel all day long. All day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Their history is our history. Romans eleven thirty two. 32. For God has consigned, listen to this, all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. Which means that all have fallen short. It tells us that God's redemptive plan did not change with the coming of Jesus. This is Paul's whole point, is that God's salvation plan has been fixed. This is something we can take to the bank. That God is a God, for whatever reason, who has graciously continued to place himself into the brokenness of this world, rather than scratching it out and starting over, he decided to make our problems, our rebellion, his own. This is the beauty of the gospel, and it is why the cross is an offense, I was thinking about this mixture piece and I'm in the final editing process of, of the book and it's been a stinking nightmare. Um, and I, I, was, I was reflecting on this very issue and I, I, I argue this and reflecting even on the brokenness of my own childhood. I said, the mixture may cause us to ask, where was God? But as I wrestle with my past, when his absence was my lived experience, I see now what I could not see then, not a God who caused my suffering, but a God who is there protecting, though not preventing. There were parameters, but not intervention. Love was with me in the suffering, shaping me and preparing me for what I am today. I think that our mixture is a source of much stumbling and offense, probably due to wrong ideas about God, human nature, and an underdeveloped or non-existent theology of suffering. There is no doubt that the exodus from the church we see around us right now from many flows from a reduction of faith to merely a means toward personal fulfillment as if happiness is the goal. An oversimplification of existence where the suffering servant, Jesus himself, has been turned into some kind of cosmic Santa Claus or on the other side, there is a distaste and bitterness for many toward a rigidity in many churches that has presented God as responsible for all that we experience, a determined existence by the unmoved mover, that's a Greek idea, not a Christian one, whose severity flows from his inscrutable holiness. Unfortunately, this kind of determinism unwittingly ascribes to God a secret mean streak that aligns more with the unpredictability of the Koran's vision of Allah than it does the Lord of mercy who hid Moses in the rock and placed himself directly in the path of our first parents' brokenness. Neither view, allows, neither view allows for the immovable reality that existence comes in endless shades of gray. A black and white theological grid is not compatible with the complexity and nuances of existence and only serves to render the church impotent in its ability to represent the one who in his sovereignty was pleased not just to identify with our humanity, but with our sin." This is what I want you to understand as we dig into these passages. And if that was dense, it's because it was written. And that's why I don't manuscript. Because <laughs> it would be really, really long sermons of me not looking up. All right. Romans chapter 9, verses 25 through 26. First of all, we see in this picture of God's patience and the cross of stumbling, we see the theme of calling and inclusion. A lot of confusion around what does it mean to be called by God. But it says in Romans 9, 25-26, As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, so he's talking now, God was already prophesying through Israel's prophets that Gentiles would be brought into God's salvation plan. It says, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Paul will continue to build on this picture because one of the views at the time that Jesus was on the scene in the world is that the Jews viewed their election, I think actually much like the church often views election, which is a really sad way of viewing it, which is that, We are chosen, they are not, therefore we must cloister and protect ourselves from them. And that kind of us versus them mentality is not, once again, Israel's history. That is the church's history. It's humanity's history. Our natural tendency to gravitate toward those that we relate to or connect with or agree with and then create scapegoats with everyone else. And I think that what Paul is trying to show those Jewish Christians who are still struggling with the idea that God would graft in those pagan Gentiles. How could the God of Israel allow Gentiles to come into this holy space? We believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but we thought he was going to restore Israel's glory. And what Paul is saying to them is the same thing that Jesus said to them, is that you misunderstood what the plan was that you turned it into a plan about you. It was always about a God who loves the world, and you missed that point. And so what Paul is is saying is like, listen, our own scriptures declare that God's plan was always to include Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers, that the Jews were supposed to be conduits by which God's grace would be made known to the world. They failed in that. But God knew that. And that... Knowledge is what we have when we read those passages that Jesus Christ is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That the plan of the cross was already in play before anything began. God knew that that limited freedom would be abused and misused and would create separation. But that did not stop him from moving through human history and working out his redemptive purposes. This is why Peter says, listen, you, it's not like God is slow in his promises. For, for God, a thousand, a thousand years is but a day. And I think that this is this is the reality as we see the world moving, history moving. It does seem to be moving toward a particular goal. There is something happening in the world right now, and we need to be aware of it. That God's redemptive purposes are still happening. You know, just this week is so powerful. I, f- I feel like <laughs> I was in Chicago, and Darcy and I were doing this counseling, and we we um, had dinner with two couples and. One of the couples, uh, the, the man was a, was a retired youth pastor. And, you know, he's in, he's in Illinois. And, he was, and there was a bit of deconstruction going on for sure. He's going through some pretty significant struggles and, and family suffering that was making him question whether God was at play still. And, and he asked the question, he goes, well, how is it? how's it going in Portland? Like, what's going on? I'm like, it's weird. I've just been seeing so many people come to faith right now. And he was like, that is impossible. I'm like, no, no." actually, like, people go to church in Portland. Like, it's like, are you serious? Like, he was so blown away that out of all the places in the planet, this seems like the last city I mean, if you go anywhere else in the U.S., everyone thinks that we are bat-blank crazy, okay? Like, we people do not have, like, high views of Portland, Oregon anymore. And, and yet, Californians and New York are still moving here. Some of you are them. Um, and uh, I... <laughs> but that's because it, you know, it takes a place that's actually just as messed up for it to seem like a better possibility. Um, and so, I... I was, I was struck by this conversation because it was like, it had, it had been hitting me. Like, I feel like people are more open to the, yes, there has been an abandonment of the church. No doubt. Door of Hope's been reduced at least by 40%. Uh, we'll yet to see how many more will come back over time as COVID restrictions diminish. But I, I don't know if it's about COVID anymore. Um, and, and then I was just focusing on this the other day. I get this email from this guy who said, I discovered you through a video documentary that you did with Tim Mackey. I was blown away by what's happening at Door of Hope. I wanted to make a gift to the church. He goes, I literally, view, I'm, I'm a Texan, so just know that we literally view Portland as like, you know, the city that is completely lost and is just purely under the judgment of God, probably going to be burned up in, in hellfire. Like, I mean, he was like, he, like was, he goes, I'm kind of ashamed, that I think that, and I have a kid that's now living there, and my wife, her oldest, also lives there, and neither are walking with the Lord, and just seeing what God is doing at Door of Hope just gave us this emblem of hope, and I felt ashamed that it is in the dark places that the light often shines the brightest, that God's calling In his inclusion, people, we're not that different from Israel. We still have this weird view that God isn't in the business of saving those kind of people. And what Paul is saying is that God is in the business of saving people because God loves the world. And this calling is something that's powerful. Look Look what it says in Romans 1, 6. Including you who are called. Notice what the calling is. We turn calling into a job, what we do, or you know our unique place in the story of the kingdom i would actually argue that election has more to do with the work and calling has more to do with god's saving plan he calls us to belong to jesus what a powerful i never noticed that verse i mean i already taught through it but that is a beautiful sentence you were called to belong that the deepest longing of the human heart is to belong to, to have a place that, that is home. In belonging to Jesus, it, it isn't about you being a slave and him being a, a harsh master. It is about him being literally home for you. Your service to him, it flows out of the joy that he is a good master. And he says, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. And God's redemptive plan is taking his enemies and making them his friends. That is the beauty of the gospel. And this is why calling and inclusion is go hand in hand for it was his desire, it was his desire that all men should be saved, not that all will be. in fact, Jesus says in matthew twenty two one of those difficult or challenging passages, and i 'm not sure that it 's dealing so much with with salvation as it is with usability because I think many Christians don't understand that they belong to Jesus and they miss out on the opportunity to experience his grace and his power Um, but it says for many are called but few are chosen we have to be very careful uh, when we read a passage like that because you could immediately end up with this idea that heaven is actually pretty empty and hell is really full Uh, And I think we do that with the Sermon on the Mount. Those passages are not, we we can't say explicitly that those are speaking of who's in and who's out. What we can say is that Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he is talking about what it means to be a disciple. And all I know is that that the narrow path is easy to fall off of because I've fallen off of it. So I think that the hope always lies in the fact that for God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So whatever you do with those hard passages, you got to balance them with these inclusive passages because they are important for us keeping a balanced vision of what God is like, what God is like. Because even the, the young rich ruler, Jesus didn't chase him after he walked away, but it did say this, he looked at him and he loved him. So I am willing to say that the disobedient are the ones that Jesus tends to love, which is all of us, and that's good news. Mercy and judgment. Look at verses 27 through 29. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. I think this is one of those passages that... Paul is saying, listen, just because you are born nationally a Jew, like genetically you are a Jew, just because you are from Israel does not make you a friend of God. Jesus was very clear on that. But what it also says is that God in his mercy when the entire nation essentially turned its back on him, that God in his mercy, and this is what it says about all of humanity, that all of us were disobedient, turning our backs on God, and that his mercy and his judgment can never be separated from one another. And the one thing that is clear in scripture is that God is a God who is slow to anger. He seems to be able to hold his anger in ways that you and I cannot He is patient. This is why James 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If God was just the severe judge, none of us would stand a chance. And Paul was saying, you're so focused in on this idea that Israel has been abandoned when you don't realize that God has actually always been in the business of saving And that there have been Jews that have been saved. And there are Jews that are, you have a church full of Jews that are believers. Why are you thinking that God has abandoned his covenantal plan? When did you just think because you were born a Jew that you're just saved because of that? It's the same thing for Christians, guys. Because this is one of the great issues with the mainline denominations. It's one of my my clear struggles with the Catholic faith is the idea that you were baptized as an infant. You're good, you're golden. You're you know, you're in the books. The church has declared to you a child of God. And unless the church declares that you're not a child of God, you you know, you you're you're saved. That is a dangerous game to play for salvation comes to us one person at a time. In other words, each one of us have to actually come to faith on our own terms. You as children cannot live on the fumes of your parents' faith. It's one of the things that we saw so clearly out of the Jesus movement is that this whole generation of people that get radically saved in this clear, powerful movement of God, why were their children so horrible? It's a a really harsh statement. I'm just, I'm joking. But I actually, I'm not. So I, I did actually do a concert once at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, like the, it's the hub of the Jesus movement. And, um, and I was in telecast, and I'd only been a believer for a couple years. I'm not kidding you. The worst youth group I have ever dealt, like, I was like, if I didn't love Jesus so much, this would make me not want to be a Christian. Everything about this, I don't know if it's the OC, what the, what the heck's going on here, But and I actually yelled at these kids. They're like these highs. I'm like, you guys are horrible. Like, why, why am I here? They were like, just so rude. <laughs> like, they wouldn't listen. We're trying to talk, and they were like, just, and I'm like, if you don't want to listen, we're just going to leave. And then it was like, they were all embarrassed, and it was awkward, and then I felt mean, and then I got complained to the record label and told that I was mean. Actually, multiple times on tour. <laughs> I lacked grace back then, but they really were horrible Horrible, horrible youth group. Like, if God was not merciful, I would feel like there is no hope for any of those kids. No. <laughs> Actually, I've met some of those kids now that are working in ministry. But it's, it's fascinating. It just reminds me, though, again and again, that the disobedience is the natural part of human existence in our fallen bodies and our fallen minds. And the only way that we have any power to overcome that is that we must experience God's saving presence. Each one of us for ourselves if we want to experience it communally. And you are drawn. Maybe you are not a believer and you've been drawn here because you sense God's spirit. Hopefully it's something that you desire. You see something in others that you want. And I pray to God that we reflect a God who is slow to anger, a God who is gracious, a God whose deepest heart is that people come to a saving knowledge of who He is. A God who is drawing you. It says, it says, No one comes to me, Jesus said, unless the Spirit draws them. But the good news is Jesus said if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So wherever the church is lifting up Jesus, wherever you in your personal life are lifting up Jesus, people will be drawn. I've seen it my own life personally, I've seen it in this church corporately. God draws people to his son when he's lifted up, no matter how broken or messy we are. And the more honest we are about our brokenness, the more honest we are about our own shortcomings, the less it diminishes those barriers that actually has turned people off from the church because they feel like it's a place full of hypocrites. If we could just actually diminish that and say, you know what, it's true, we kind of are hypocrites often. And, but the reason we're saints is because Jesus has saved us. Because we're hypocrites that have been forgiven. And actually, what we are inviting you into is the saving life of Jesus is when we continually surrender again and again to him each week, each day, every day, Lord, not my will be done, but your will be done, and I'm going to make a mess of it, but I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow you. God's mercy and his judgment, we can't talk about his judgment without putting his mercy in front of it. And I think that we can trust actually his judgment. Even the wrath of God in Romans 1, it says, therefore God gave them over, I believe is still a rest- restorative wrath. It's very much the same language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians when he said of the man that was sleeping with his stepmother, give that man over. Just like Romans 1, the wrath of God is God gives them over to a debased mind to do those things which are unfitting. In, in 1 Corinthians 3, give that man over that, to, that is, give his flesh to satan that his soul might be saved and it's clear in second corinthians that the man being out of fellowship and feeling the full weight of his of what he has done comes back to the church in repentance and paul says hey if the man has repented invite him back there's it's a restorative judgment that even for us as christians that should be the desire in a culture that is is pushing for justice often justice is being pushed in a way where there is no mercy. It is, there is no hope for those individuals, for those people that cause this kind of pain. We cannot afford to be that as Christians. I think what Paul is declaring to us here is the picture that God is always functioning in mercy. Even when his judgment happens, there is still, it is still part of working out his redemptive purposes. I like what Karl Barth said, he says, to this very people, that is, God has stretched forth his hands all day long. To this very people, God never was and never grew weary of offering himself, of condescending to it and repeatedly repeatedly proving his loyalty. God is the one who has mercy on this people is this a mitigation of the establishment of its guilt? The meaning of Israel's election is that in the very act of becoming guilty toward God, it must genuinely magnify his faithfulness. And he, he argues that their, their election and actually God's Judgment on their guilt actually proves the fact that they were chosen by him because God is a God who functions always in mercy. It always, is, it always is a fulfillment, a moving toward the fulfillment of his redemptive purposes, whether we can see it in the moment or not. It's a beautiful thing. Faith and works. Romans 9, 30-31. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So Paul says, what shall we say then? And he goes, this is what I'm saying. The Gentiles did not try to keep the law. They put their faith in Jesus and they had righteousness imputed to them. Unlike the Jews who did not understand that Abraham was always the picture of salvation by faith alone that Abraham believed God and it was it was given to him as righteousness God treated him as righteous because he trusted him he surrendered to him and he says the Jewish people forgot that they lost that God's way of saving people was always the same it was always through faith trusting in Yahweh the law was given as a parameter to be around the people so that they could exercise faith and belong to the living God, know the living God. This is why Jesus put so much emphasis on personal knowledge, not knowing about God, but he said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me. Again and again, have I been with you so long and still you do not know me. John 17, verse three, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the living God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Think about, the great saints in the Old Testament. Think about Moses. Moses was not a perfect man by any means. Think about David, but they were men who knew God. Samuel knew God. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Moses, show me your glory. And God hides him in the cleft of the rock and proclaims his mercy and his love that he is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Faith was always the means by which we entered into God's work. And this is the point, John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, because it's Jesus doubling down on what the work of God is. And he says, and they said to him, what must we do to do the work of God? And Jesus answered them and said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. What Paul is basically demonstrating here is that Israel's failure was a failure to believe in God. What they instead believed in was their own effort to keep a law that they could not keep. And that was their condemnation. It's the same condemnation that Jesus will give at the end of the age when it says many will stand before me and say did I not do this and that thing and he will say away from me I never knew you. So all Paul is doing is doubling down what he's already said. Abraham is the emblem of what it means to be a person of faith. God just wants you to trust in what he has done for you through Jesus. This is a righteousness now has come to us apart from the law. The cross of stumbling. And you can see why it would be a cross of stumbling for those Jewish listeners that have been raised from the youngest age, from their earliest memories, to keep the Torah, to practice the law, that the law would save them. And even though they've put their faith in Jesus, they're still struggling to not trust in the law. And I want to just once again say, we're not any different in the church because we create our own laws that make us feel okay with God when in actuality we're worshiping and practicing all these things around a God that we don't actually know. And that's deeply troubling. And this is why I am not a prescriptive preacher and why I hammer every week for the last 13 years, because we're coming up on 13 years of Door of Hope's history, is that the thing that matters the most is can you honestly say I know him? I don't care how holy your external life is. I wanna know, do you know Jesus? Because I actually believe that scripture is clear that we can know him. If Jesus says, I am with you always to the end of the age, he either is or he isn't. If we are told that, that Paul's deepest desire is that I may know him and participate in his life and his suffering, To know Jesus is the goal of everything, friends. And it's the only thing that assures that we are living by faith and not by works. It is only then that we have a faith that works. Because it's not like we're not called to do anything. It's not like hold still and receive grace. It's just that our work flows out of knowing him. It's like yesterday with my wife. I was like, I love serving my wife because I love her. I love her. I like, I, it brings me the greatest joy to bless her. I want to always buy her things when we can't afford it. I, I want, I, I have to tell her every day a million times how beautiful she is. She's brilliant. I, she's an amazing mom. I, wanted, I want to, I want to serve her. I want to honor her. I always say that my wife is my greatest gift and my greatest idol. And it's true. But it is the emblem of, of what actually worship should look like Uh, is is our relationship. How do we serve our friends? How do we serve one another? Because we can't serve God and refuse to serve one another. God gives us one another as a way of knowing how it is that we're to know him. The same way that I know my wife is, is, is how I am to know Jesus, at least on that emotional, spiritual, soul connection. I am an intimate of Christ, and Christ is an intimate of me. Is that true for you? Because just like any relationship, if you don't invest in it, it's not going to be very deep. I know plenty of husbands and wives throughout my time in ministry that were absolute strangers to one another, and I have met plenty of Christians that Jesus was a stranger to them as well. And I think that this is the thing that has to challenge us, because it closes here with the cross and the Christ of stumbling. In Romans 9, 32 through 33, it says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. They did not pursue the law by faith. The, the, the keeping of the law was meant to, to create parameters so that they could be in intimacy with Yahweh, but they didn't do that. They replaced Yahweh with the law and then missed the whole point. But as, it, as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone Jesus was the stone of offense for the Jews because he said all of your law keeping, all of your Torah practice, none of it matters because you don't know God. Because if you knew God, you would know that I came from him. But the fact that you don't receive me shows that you've never received my father either. And it says that he was then the source of stumbling. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it was written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is why it says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. Because we say that the way to salvation is not a way at all. It is a person. Jesus is the way. And that is not easy for us to get our heads around. This is why I always say that we will, we will apprehend the truth of the gospel much more than we fully comprehend it. And we will apprehend the truth of it before we fully comprehend it. So if you're someone that has never put your faith in Jesus, but you keep being drawn to this, you keep coming back again and again, I would say that you are apprehending something that is being drawn that is drawing you here, which is God himself, although it may be dimly, the fact is is that God is moving and he's making himself known. And Jesus invites us to take that step of faith. It says that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. No front-loading the gospel. It doesn't say you gotta do this first, you gotta do this first. It doesn't say you gotta stop doing this and you have to stop doing that. It says repent and believe change directions, who's going to be God in your life? Is it going to be you or is it going to be Jesus? Now, we have this unfortunate thing that we do, which is is that we have our own little realms of ethics, our own little law that makes us feel like this guarantees that things are okay with God. But the fact is, is that none of those things matter if you don't have Jesus right, if you don't have the center right. It's why my dad was so hung up on surrendering to Jesus. He thought it for him, it was like, well, like, you know, pastors before told me that I got to stop smoking and I got to stop drinking and I need to stop with the ladies. I'm like, dad, you can't even walk. You have, there's no ladies. Um, and, uh, and he's like, I'm not dead yet, son. And it's true. That's, I love that answer. It's actually It really works for him. Um, I was just teasing the other day. I'm like, Dad, you know, I think you're like beloved by so many people because I talked about you so much. And he goes, Why would you talk about me? And I'm like, Because you're weirdly charming, and and a, and a, and I can't not look at your face and see my, and not see my own because I see in you me, I see in you all of us. And and he goes, He just goes, I like that. It's good. Here's the power of it. It's not about surrendering this or that thing. It's about you. What Jesus is after is you, not your practices. He's after your personhood. And it's not about trying harder. It's about surrendering fully. And I think that if we are a church that just surrendered to Jesus and we're just honest about our brokenness and really surrendered, we would be unleashed we would be a church that has power that could literally transform the makeup of the city. And I think that we are making a difference, but I believe that the best is yet to come. I believe that the spirit of God is moving in this place and I wanna see him move fully. And what I want you guys to see today is that, is that the cross of stumbling and the patience of God is this, is that the gospel is offensive because it says that you cannot save yourself. But God's patience is that He has so much patience that He will pursue, like a man like my father, all the way to the grave because it's for this purpose that He came. He identified with our brokenness. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That God died. (laughs) The author of life literally gave up His life so that He could take us out of the death that we continually feed ourselves and bring us fully alive in him. What a powerful and beautiful picture. What a powerful gospel. What a powerful passage. So I don't read nine, 10, 11. This is about Israel, it has nothing to do with us. Israel is us. (laughs) We are the disobedient, wayward people and God has patiently put his arm out to us all day long and it's offensive that God would continue to love broken men and women like us. It offends us. It would almost be easier. I often say, sometimes I wish he would just be mad at me. It would be easier if he would just, you know, give me a good spanking here and there. And he does correct his children. So don't ask for spankings; you might get one. Uh, But he is a God who is patient. That's why when you see his judgment, it feels so severe because it's it's not it is not the most common thing that you see about God in Scripture. God is a God who loves us, and he hates everything that robs him of what he loves. This is why he hates sin. Because it robs him of what he loves, which is you. So surrender to him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the gospel and its ability to bring transformation to our lives. And we do pray that we would understand that you are a God who is calling us to yourself. That you are a God who laid down your life for the world because you love this world. That you are a God whose mercy triumphs over judgment. And that your judgment still serves your redemptive purposes. Lord, you are a God who has done everything that needs to be done. And you ask us to trust in your son and we trust in you, Jesus. And we pray that our trust in you would bring forth works that demonstrate the intimacy that we have with you. This is the work of God that you believe in him and he has sent. Each day is an act of faith and we want a faith that works. Lord Jesus, we see that your cross and your personhood is not just a stumbling block for the world, but it often stumbles us because it's hard for us to truly accept that we cannot add to what you have done. Lord, that the cross puts us all on an even playing field. There is no difference. There is now neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, for all are one in Christ. Thank you for that, Lord. We love you. We give you this day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.